And we're in Acts chapter 12 today. Uh, last week, if you remember, we saw the gospel come to Antioch and the gospel was flourishing there. And as the chapter came to an end, we saw Barnabas uh, and Paul leaving to go deliver financial support to the churches in Judea. Uh, and so they left. And then the chapter we're looking at today, chapter 12, at the very end, we're going to see that Paul and, Paul and Barnabas come back. It's the return trip. And so what we're seeing here is what happens in the middle between those two things. Um, seems real quick on paper. Remind you, they didn't have cars or trains or planes or anything that moved much quicker than a camel or a donkey. So uh, there is a long period of time between these two events. Uh, and yet this is, this is what happens between. Uh, this is one of those texts that you find in the scripture and you kind of think, uh, what is it here for? Like, why was this included? Uh, and, and here's why. It was included because it, it shows us once again that the gospel cannot be stopped. Um, no matter who or what tries to stop the gospel, it cannot be stopped. Uh, and here in this passage, we're going to see God's absolute sovereignty over even who is the most powerful man in, in the land here, in this case, uh, King Herod. It's also true today of every powerful man or woman uh, in, in places of leadership in any nation around the globe today. Um, so as we look at this, I, I hope that there is a reminder, there should be a reminder for us that uh, we live in a country where we get to elect our leaders, but to remember that we only bow down in worship to the triune God. Uh, so let's read. We're going to start with the first 19 verses, uh, and then we'll read the last few once we get closer to the end. Uh, so chapter 12, <clears throat> verse 1. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after Passover to bring him out, of the temple, out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out, and they went along the one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But 
motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Now the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea and Caesarea and spent time there. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. O God, fill us with the light so that the darkness will hide. Make us to love your word and to believe your word and to truly apply your word to our lives. God, please clear our minds of everything that seeks to distract us in this moment so that we might hear from your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Peter is arrested. and His only crime is that he is proclaiming salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And it sounds, uh, we look at this and we see an old story. Unless we think that this problem is reserved only for the early church, uh, I want to remind you that today, uh, on this day, on January 31st, 2016, there are still over 60 countries in this world where Christians may be in prison simply because of their faith. Uh, Open Doors is an organization here in the United States, uh, and they keep track of, of persecution of Christians around the globe. Uh, they even keep this top 50 list, and you know nations are moving up and down. I don't know if they want to or not, but they're uh, moving up and down this top 50 list. And the top five countries uh, currently where Christians face the harshest persecution uh, are North Korea, Iraq, some place called Eritrea, which I never even knew existed, uh, Afghanistan, and Syria. That fifth one, Syria, is actually where our passage today takes place. It's interesting that here we are some 2,000 years later, and today there are still Christians who find themselves facing persecution similar to what Peter faced so many years ago on that same parcel of land. Um, I read a great many stories this week of Christians who are in prison for their faith. It was kind of overwhelming at many times uh, you know, that as this moment when we gather to worship and we think nothing of it, uh, that there are brothers and sisters in Christ from other cultures that are uh, locked away simply because they believe what we believe. Uh, one of them was a, a young wife and a mother of two in China who was simply using Christian material in a, in a kindergarten classroom uh, and was arrested for that. Uh, there was a house church pastor in Iran who was telling a Muslim how his sin could be forgiven in Jesus, and while he was allowed to believe that, he could not tell someone else that, and so he has been arrested. Uh, there are so many Christians in so many different countries, and most of these are facing persecution from the officially recognized government of that land. Uh, it's even worse in other places where uh, Islamic groups treat Christians like something less than human beings. Uh, my point in this is that what we see in our text today is still happening today all across the globe. And we can learn from this chapter in Acts how we can support and care for these brothers and sisters in these faraway lands. And so uh, let's look at this passage and, and see what we learn. First of all, Herod was a very common name, particularly in the ruling family there, and so it gets a little confusing. Just try to set you at, set the, uh, who we're talking about here. This was, um, there was a man named Herod who you might remember wanted to kill Jesus when he was a baby, uh, shortly after his birth. This is not that Herod. Um, there was also a Herod who you might remember had John the Baptist's head actually delivered on a silver platter, um, you know, for a very important reason. A girl had danced very well, and so he had to reward her with something. 
Uh, and so he had a, his head delivered to her mother, uh, to the mother of this woman. Uh, this is this, that, that's the same Herod who Jesus, during his trial, actually meets with. Again, this is not that Herod. Um, this Herod is a nephew of that Herod. So there is a relation there. there you know, it's a family of crazy men, and this man is no less. Uh, this Herod is the king at the time, and he holds great worldly power. That's one of the things he has in common with the other Herods. Uh, what we see here, though, is that it, there's a lot working against the church in this moment. Herod has killed the apostle James, and what he finds is that, um, uh, what the church is finding then is that this persecution is, just not, is not just about comfort in their lives, it's about their actual lives. Um, James is the first apostle to be killed for his faith. James will not be the last apostle to be killed for his faith. Herod, in this, discovers that the Jewish people are really excited about this. Um, they appreciate that he has killed James. And uh, presumably the reason is, is that this will put a stop to Christianity. And stopping the spread of the gospel was an important thing to the Jewish people at this time. Uh, it certainly brings to life for us what Jesus said would happen back in Luke 21, 16 and 17. There, Jesus is speaking and he says, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and families, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. So now, Herod has captured Peter, who is known to be a significant leader in the church since he was one of the men who traveled with Jesus from town to town during his ministry. Uh, Herod's plan then is to, to take Peter and to parade him before the people and most likely put him to death in a way that, to gain more fame for his name before the Jewish people. Herod decides, though, to wait to deal with Peter until after the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. We always see these feasts in Scripture, and they confuse us. The, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, it's a seven-day-long feast that would go on. Within, the, within those seven days was the Passover you're probably more familiar with, uh, which is just a 24-hour celebration. Um, so then in verse 5, we see the most significant statement in this whole, st whole story. you got your Bibles. Look at that. It says, Peter was kept in prison... But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. That term, but, is very significant. It's, it kind of sets this up as a battle. It's almost like the word versus you'd see between two people. Something like um, King Kong versus Godzilla. You know, an epic battle like that. Or Ali versus Frazier. Or, um, you know, you're this generation. What do we have? Ronda Rousey versus Holly, what's her name? Uh, something like that. One of those battles, you know. This is, uh, and so the first contender in this battle is, is Herod, and he's in this strong position, uh, you know, and what he has is this, this really strong prison. Um, so we look at this and we say, you know, on Herod's side is a security detail that consists of four, four squads of soldiers. At night, Peter is actually chained. Uh, that's plural. There are chains on him, actually. Uh, connected to him. There is a guard who is sleeping on each side of him, you know, just in case he were to try to escape uh, while, <clears throat> while he's sleeping. And, and he's locked at least behind one gate, it would seem a few more than that, um, that are guarded by soldiers. And so the odds of escape are certainly not in Peter's favor, particularly, particularly when you realize he's not even trying to escape. Uh, so that's that's what Herod has. And, and then in verse 5, we read that word, but, and, and all that follows is what is on Peter's side in, the, in this battle. And, and so what do we see that Peter has uh, to go up against all that Herod has? He has earnest 
prayer being made for him to God. Now, I know you can be super spiritual and think, yeah, that's a big deal. But uh, I think more likely we look at that and we think that that doesn't sound like much. Um, we're starting to see this as a little more like, like a David and Goliath situation. On the one side, it's this great, powerful giant with giant weapons and, you know, a history of success. And on the other side is a young boy with a sling and a pocket full of rocks. And that's, that's kind of the point of what we're seeing here. See, prayer is more powerful than, than you and I really know. I can remember hearing a story once about a, a group of soldiers who found themselves cornered and there was a massive group of, of enemies approaching them and their destruction seemed like it was unavoidable and, and yet um, somewhere in that moment their communication device, and I say communication device because I don't remember what it actually was, um, began working again and so they called for these reinforcements. Uh, they called to those who had much more power than they did. And just in time this massive airstrike comes over overwhelmingly destroying these enemies before they were able to get to them. And I think of that story because they were saved not because of their own might, not because of their own strength, but because they had means to ask for help from those who were much mightier with much more power. That's prayer for us. We're not strong. There are people in positions of physical and political and social power far beyond anything you and I have. But we do have access to the almighty, sovereign God of the universe who invites us to cry out to him in prayer. Do you notice in our, our text, it doesn't say simply that they prayed. It says earnest prayer for Peter was made. And earnest is a significant word there. It's a translation of a Greek word that means constant, fervent, without ceasing. There's this passion, this, this sense of, of, of constant constantly praying. Uh, it's like they're putting to, to practice Ephesians 6.18, which hadn't even been written yet, but says, pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. Ah, you know? Um, I want you also to notice there that it's a corporate prayer. Uh, they're praying together, right? Which is exactly the way Jesus taught us to pray. Travis mentioned it earlier, the, the Lord's Prayer. But you might remember that when we pray, we didn't pray, My Father, which art in heaven. We prayed our Father, corporately, plurally, which art in heaven. I think it's a, a, a wonderful thing to see that they met together to pray together. Uh, we do that as a church when we gather here on Sundays and we, we worship in this service each week. Uh, we do it on a more personal level in the small groups that we, when we meet, uh, either after a, a service at the Shanahan's or over at the Durrits. And, <clears throat> you know, and we do that because we have needs, which means that we have need for each other's prayers. We're also going to start meeting once a month on a Saturday morning at Bluestem Bistro. We'll meet at 8.30. No preparation needed if you're interested in coming to this. Just come and pray. Uh, Co-ed. Uh, the first time we're going to do this is going to be Saturday, February 27th, and then we'll do it one month after, once a month after that. Uh, we're going to pray for each other. We're going to pray for the city, our country, uh, the elections, the world, all sorts of stuff for our, our brothers and sisters in other countries. Um, and we're going to stay there. We'll be there somewhere in the realm of 30 minutes, sipping coffee, uh, and then we'll be able to move on. And so I, I tell you that so you know about it. 
Um, if you can come to that, great. If not, don't feel guilty. Uh, that's okay. Notice also here in our text, it doesn't say that they were uh, what they were praying for exactly. And so we can only imagine, right? We can try to think what they might have been praying for. Uh, it's not likely they were praying specifically for an angel to go in and do all those specific things it did. Uh, um, perhaps they were asking God simply to cause Herod to just let him go, to change his mind. Uh, maybe it was just a general prayer that somehow, some, some way, rescued Peter. The important thing here isn't the specifics of the prayer so much as who they are speaking to in prayer. Uh, we know how this ends, right? We just read the story. There's no secrets here. God sends an angel who appears brightly like light. Peter must have been both amazed. He must have um, been in some sort of fear, both of the angel and also the fear that this angel was going to wake up, the men who were on each side of him. Uh, as we think about this and you picture this angel, I want to remind you that uh, in Scripture, the image of, a, of an angel is not some motherly woman, uh, like we tend to, to find in, you know, uh, gift shops and things of that nature. Uh, the image in Scripture is some fearsome creature, a powerful soldier. Uh, and so despite the, the bright light, the soldiers do not wake up. Peter did, though, right? Um, he was more like the mother of a newborn baby. There's one little peep, there's a light, and up Peter goes, and, and he sees what's happening. Uh, the soldiers, on the other hand, they were more like the father of a newborn baby. Um, what? She was crying last night? No way. You know, I'm a, I'm a light sleeper. I would have heard that. Uh, and the mom's thinking, yeah, but you didn't. Um, <clears throat> your husband's awake. He hears it. Shame on you for not waking up. <laughs> anyway, Peter follows the angel, angel uh, in what seems like a dream to him. You know, he's not sure if this is real or a vision. And when he reaches the exit gate, it swings open and out he goes to freedom. Uh, and then he finds himself just standing alone. The angel has abandoned him in some sense. He's out in the streets. Uh, and then in verse 11, we learn that, uh, that he's very aware that God has delivered him. Uh, you know, he's really quick to recognize that. Uh, it's similar to the story we know of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, you know, they're rescued from the, from the furnace and what is uh, presumably an angel uh, as well. Uh, so before we move on, let me remind us of this, that uh, very important. God loved both Peter and James. Okay, those are the two men in the story that are being persecuted. But God loved both Peter and James. And I mention that because James he allows to be put to death, right? And Peter he's rescued in this amazing way. See, despite that difference, today in this moment while we sit here, both of those men are safe in the arms of Christ. And I point this out because the day will come, if it hasn't already, where you're going to be tempted to look at suffering in your life and, and believe it is the result of God not loving you or the result of God abandoning you in some way. Christian, nothing could be further from the truth. Suffering is not a litmus test for the love of God. The way that both James and Peter can know that they are loved by God as a father loves a child and it is not whether they were rescued from Herod or allowed to be put to death by the hand of Herod. It's this. It's simply that Christ died for their sins. And God has given them faith to believe it and be forgiven. That's the same for you and I today. We know that God loves us by the fact that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross has atoned for, or you might say paid for, our sins. 
And so while we may face suffering in this life, God has rescued us from the eternal wrath that we justly deserve. Both Peter and James, because of Christ's death on the cross and the faith that God gives them, have been rescued from that too. That's why in a little bit we're going to be singing a song by by Charles Wesley that includes these words, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Okay, so God does rescue Peter. And where does he go when he gets out? You know, there's no directions at this point. You're simply free, standing out of the prison. Now what? Verse 12, we see where he goes. He, uh, He goes where he knows he has friends. He goes to the house of John Mark's mother. Uh, It seems it must have been a familiar place. He doesn't need a map or Google Maps or something of that nature to get there. Uh, You might imagine if this happened in our, someone in our congregation here, that uh, they'd head over to the Dura, to the Shanahan's, one of those homes that we've gathered in fairly often, some place that was familiar. Uh, And this story, as we look at this, I think is a good reminder. I'll I'll mention this as well, uh, because we've learned in the past in Acts that the church, remember there's a moment where they're selling things and uh, and they're distributing them on the church and everything was being shared among them. And yet we see here that this house still belongs to Mary. She even has a servant in her home, right? So she hasn't gotten down to bare bones even. Um, Clearly God has blessed Mary. Plenty of finances, and she didn't just sell everything and give the funds to the church. Rather, she is using her home. She's using whether God's blessed her to serve the church. Uh, but she still has possession of these things. Um, so Peter then knocks on the door, and there's this humor in this moment because uh, really what we see is it proves more difficult for Peter to get into the house of Mary than it was for him to get out of the prison of Herod. Uh, it must have just been incredibly frustrating to him. This, this servant girl, Rhoda, uh, her name means Little Rose, beautiful name. Um, but she goes to the door and she hears Peter's voice through it. They didn't have windows like we had, so she just heard it. And, and she's so excited that she just up and runs off to go tell everyone, hey, Peter's at the door. Um, oddly, they are praying for Peter, for his rescue, presumably. They know what's coming up here uh, the next day. And, and yet when Peter shows up, they're surprised. You mean God really did answer our prayer? Uh, the whole thing, though, is like a, you know an old episode of I Love Lucy or something um, Peter's got to still be anxious that he's going to get caught. He's standing in the, in the street, you know, knocking on the door. Um, I can imagine him just out there kind of doing that whisper yelling thing like, Rhoda, Rhoda, open the door, Rhoda, come back. Uh, you know, it's just this ridiculous situation. And, uh, you know, maybe the angel left him too soon. You know, there's one more door I need you to open. Rhoda won't open it. Um, but eventually he does get in. And in verse 16, we read, they saw him and they were amazed. They were amazed because God had heard their prayer and rescued Peter. And he explains to them everything that's happened and how they got there. And he asked them to pass this news on to to Jesus' half-brother, a different James, not the one who, um, not the apostle that that gets murdered at the beginning. Um, This is the James who will be the author of the book of James. Uh, And then Peter just up and leaves town. He heads to Caesarea. Um. So the way chapter 12 then is, is laid out, it's very clear kind of manner. Uh, in the last six verses of it, the story returns back to Herod. Herod is kind of these, these bookends on both ends of the story. Um, in this passage, if you look at your Bibles, uh, follow along. I'll read starting in verse 20, and then we'll look at it in a little more detail. It says, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, They asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, 
took a seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. Um, as the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And so Herod, not shocking, is angry at a group of people. Uh, we don't know exactly why it was. These were some cities that were along the Mediterranean coast. Um, apparently what we're seeing here is that Herod has cut off food from getting to them, which puts them in a very desperate place. And so they go to Herod and they're trying to make peace because that will restore food to their, their land. Um, he gives them a speech, doesn't tell us what it says or why he gives them a speech, but he does this and they respond by shouting praises to him. We don't know if they were being sincere, uh, if they were doing exactly what they thought he wanted them to do in order to get what they wanted, which was the food to return to them. Um, what is clear is Herod accepts the praise. It's not just a compliment like long live the king or you're a swell guy or something of that nature. Uh, but they actually ascribe divine status to him, saying the voice of a God and not of a man. Herod embraces their words, and God responds by showing them that indeed Herod is a mere man. God does so by sending an angel to take Herod's life. The angel strikes him immediately, but presumably he didn't die immediately. History tells us it actually took a few days. Uh, it's not recorded here, but I, but I wonder if he was able to make this connection um, between robbing God of glory that rightly belonged to God and this miserable death he faces. There's something to be learned by the fact that uh, we see here in this text, he did not give glory or give God the glory. This shouldn't surprise us about Herod. One thing we know about him is he really cares about what people think about him. You know, what were the opinions of uh, other people's opinions about him? Even, even with all his power, he was an absolute people pleaser. Way back in verse 3 at the beginning, you might remember, uh, we read there, when he saw that it pleased the Jews. That drove um, his decisions from that point forward. You know, it's a very different situation we see Herod in now, or a different response that we see Herod in, than we saw Peter in a few chapters back. You might remember in Acts 10, um, there where we read, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. Not Herod, though. Herod was a prideful man who accepted the glory that belonged to God in this case. And our text tells us he died and was eaten by worms. Uh, Josephus, Josephus, I can't pronounce some things, you know. Josephus uh, was a Jewish historian at the time, and he actually records the, the death of this Herod. Uh, it was the year 44 AD, and he says that Herod felt pain in his heart, and that he had pains in his stomachs, and it took five days for him to die. Uh, presumably the pains in his stomach would have been some sort of worms. I don't know all the details of that, but sounds gross to me. In Luke 18, 14, Jesus is speaking of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and he says this, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Herod exalted him, and God certainly humbled him. Uh, humbling may not always be as drastic as we see here. Uh, we don't see this in Scripture. I can't tell you that if I were to call you God and you accepted it, that you would be eaten by worms in five days. Um, but 
Uh, we know that this is true. We see it in God's word, and we know it's true because it is in God's revealed word. Uh, and so while we might find it uh, in ourselves that, you know, we're, we're pretty certain we're not going to let anyone bow down and worship us, I think we're all going to still struggle with this idea of, of being exalted in one form or fashion. Um, Zach Eswine, he's a pastor over in Missouri, um, he puts this struggle into a series of questions by asking this. Do I possess a stamina for going unnoticed? Can I handle being overlooked? Do I have the spirituality that equips me to do an unknown thing for God's glory? See, we can find ourselves, or rather, when we find ourselves satisfied with our God being glorified, even if we're not being glorified, we're in a good place. Now, before we close, I want to draw your attention to verse 24. It's a significant statement there. It says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Herod wished to exalt himself, and so he desired to squash the spread of the gospel. Okay, those two were opposed to each other. If I can squash Christianity and exalt myself, those are two sides of the same issue Herod's dealing with. Herod opposed Jesus, and he lost. That's why this story exists in our Bibles. The word of God simply cannot be stopped. See, Herod, who had more political and more military power than anyone in the land, tried to stop the spread of the gospel, and it cost him everything. That's why when we look at the world that we live in, right, um, especially if you're on Facebook or watching a lot of news, you start to see all these brand new obstacles to the gospel, and it causes us to kind of tense up in our chest and have fear for the future of the church. Okay? That's things we should be praying about. I'm not saying ignore it, but I also want you to know that you can rest assured um, that no matter what obstacles that the gospel faces, it continues onward, increasing and multiplying, bringing grace to all who call on the name of Christ uh, for salvation. So this chapter then ends by informing us that Paul and Barnabas have returned from Jerusalem. Uh, they've delivered financial support to the churches, and they've brought back someone with them, John Mark, right? Um, thinking we've just been in your mom's house. Uh, but John Mark, and he's going to become the, the, the author of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, so let me bottom line this for you, and then we'll close. First, prayer is our lifeline to God. Prayer is our lifeline to God. There are many situations in life we can do nothing about. But prayer connects us to the only one who can do something about the situation, no matter what the situation is. So we need to understand and we need to seek to believe the truth that the most powerful tool that we have at our disposal as the children of God is prayer. Christians, do not underestimate the power of prayer. The second thing is that we'll find our true joy as Christians when our Savior receives all the glory. The glory for the intelligence or the business know-how he's given you. The glory for the athletic or the dance or the musical abilities God has given you. The glory for, the, for your faith. Um, uh, glory for the faith and the servant's heart that God might have gifted you with. You know, it's as the first question in the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us, uh, you know, we live with purpose when our lives are, to glor are lived for the glory of God and when we find joy in him, not only now, but forever. Let's pray. God, make us to love you and to know that you are powerful enough to accomplish absolutely anything. 
Make us to really know that you have called us. Um, You've called us to speak to you in prayer because you do hear us. And you desire to listen to our prayers. God, we also ask that you make and keep our hearts humble so that we never seek the glory that belongs to you. May we shine in this life for you and because of you, but never instead of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.